Okay, we're into a new teaching series as part of the Year of Biblical Literacy. It's called God's Unfolding Story. You're going to need a Bible in front of you. If you don't own one, we'd love to give you one of ours to take away and keep it, put your name in it, read it. We believe it's the words of life that transform us. If you've got yours with you, open it to Genesis chapter 1. We'll get to that in a moment. The Bible every year is the uh, world's best-selling book. Someone uh, said a couple of years ago, it's the best-selling book that's never read. And as you know, if, you're, uh, if you've been around for any length of time, we're journeying together through the whole of the scriptures for a whole year. We're trying to read through it together in community. We're trying to teach through it so that we will understand what the Bible is, how it works, how it's been put together uh, so that we will uh, read it and it will shape us and form us, that we'll understand how best to let it uh, form us uh, into the image of Jesus Christ. Gandhi famously said that there is enough dynamite in the Bible to blow up the known world. He says there's enough dynamite to blow up the known world. But he goes on to say, if only you Christians would read your book. So that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to discover the power of the scriptures to blow up the known world, so to speak. Uh, Our working definition uh, of the Bible is here. The Bible is a library of writings that are both human and divine in origin that together tell a unified story that leads us to Jesus. Tom Wright, uh, N.T. Wright, says this. He says, the whole point of Christianity is that it offers a story which is the story of the whole world. And in this book, in your Bible, it's the story of the whole world. This story, it's true, and it answers the heart cry of every human, and it speaks to the problems of human society. It explains why things are such a mess what God's doing about it, how we can participate in that. It tells us how the story is going to end. And this evening, we're looking at how the story actually began. He goes on to say, it is public truth. But if the people of the book don't read it and know it, how will the public know it? So part of the job is to teach you so that you can live it and tell the story. Charles Gherkin, he says this, The Bible provides us with an overarching narrative in which all other narratives of the world are nested. Uh, There's a famous theory that says there are basically only seven kinds of story, seven basic plots. And every film, uh, every play, every book, every pop song, it tells one or maybe more than one of those stories. I haven't got time to go into that. But all of those seven stories, in a sense, are just attempts to capture and tell something of the ultimate overarching meta-narrative of the story of God. They all capture and reflect something of that, which is why as humans we love things like stories. Because they give us mechanisms, means by by which we can connect into the true story. He goes on to say that the Bible is the story of God. (coughs) Excuse me, the story of the world, he says, is first and foremost the story of God's activity in creating, sustaining, and actually now we know redeeming the world to fulfill God's purposes for it. And so you and I, we need to understand the story. And we need to know how to tell the story, but crucially, we need to learn to indwell it. In other words, what you need to do, what I need to do, is take the story of my life and actually realize that it's meant to be lived out as an expression of that story, to allow his story to become my story, rather than to be at war with that. And one of the ways that theologians over the years have attempted to help us make sense of, of the story of God, to, to approach the Bible in narrative form, it's what's known as narrative theology, is to divide it into six parts. Uh, Tom Wright describes it as a six-act drama. We're going to print these uh, as little postcards for you over the next couple of weeks. If you're at the back, you probably can't see it, but, but you can divide the entire Bible into six acts. Uh, Imagine, if you like, a Shakespeare play 
There are six acts. It begins at the beginning and ends at the end, and there's this whole set of drama that goes on throughout the whole uh, play. Well, imagine the Bible a bit like that. Act chapter one, which is tonight, is creation. Uh, The second act is fall. What happens when the people created in the image of God rebel against him? That's Genesis 3. Then we have Israel, Act 3, which is essentially the rest of the Old Testament. What does God seek to do about the problem created in the second act? The fourth act is Jesus, so we'll be in the Gospels. The fifth act, which is the act that we live in, we'll come to that in more detail in a few weeks' time, is the church. And then the final act is new creation. A six-act drama. And the idea in this series is that I'm going to teach through the whole drama in kind of big picture, overarching terms, so that every time you pick up your Bible, you'll be able to say, well, I know that I'm in Act 2 right now. Or this bit I'm reading, that's Act 5. Or this bit right at the end, that must be Act 6. And and to have some sense of the key themes woven through each of those acts, so that, that actually you can say, well, I wonder what's going on here. Perhaps that's something to do with that thing that Rich was talking about the other day. It'll hopefully give us a bit more of a sort of an overarching framework for making sense of this wonderful, but at times, if we're honest, perplexing book. That's the plan anyway. Uh, Bartholomew and Goheen wrote a book which I would recommend to you. It's called The Drama of Scripture. It's kind of like the standard textbook in pretty much every theological college when it comes to an introduction to the drama of scripture. It's brilliant. You can get it on Amazon and other retailers also stock it. Uh, And they say this, if our lives are to be shaped by the story of scripture, we need to understand two things well. First, that the biblical story is a compelling unity on which we may depend. In other words, you can live in that story because it's true and it's unified in and around the person of Jesus Christ. And secondly, and crucially, he says that they say this, each of us, each of us has a place within that story. Each of us. And I would be really clear, that's every human on the planet. Not just those who have come into a relationship with the Lord. So in other words, this biblical narrative that we're going to teach through, it it reveals to us God's purposes for his creation, and it invites us to participate in them. So without further ado, (coughs) should we dive into Act 1? Owen's up for it. Hello? Yes? Okay. It's a bit dark, isn't it? Can you see me? Hello. Um, So Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning... God. Let's pause there. These opening words, they, they set the stage for everything else that follows. Genesis is sometimes known as the book of origins, in that it tells the story of how creation came to be, or some of the story of how creation came to be. And there's a few things that we need to note right from the start in this first act, which only covers Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, I just want to point out a few key things for us. The first is that we need to be really clear what the creation narrative in Genesis 1 and 2 is not telling us. Okay? There are a whole load of questions that sometimes, if we're not careful, we ask of Genesis 1 and 2 that it was never written to answer. And we come with our 21st century so-called sophisticated mind and we ask questions of it that it never even had even considered in those, in those days. They'd never even considered questions like evolution. So we can't ask certain questions of it. It's not that we can't ask those questions, it's just that this text does not answer them. And you will tie yourself in knots trying to uh, get an answer to your questions, uh, some questions, uh, if you try and do that. There's no introduction. There's no kind of explanation for the existence of God. Have you noticed that? There's no kind of a little bit of apologetics like Alpha in ten in ten verses to kind of go, uh, you know, we believe there is a God. It's straight in there. In the beginning, God. And what we need to grasp is what this actually is saying. Genesis is not concerned 
with how God made the world. It doesn't answer those questions. It's a creation narrative written to a particular group of people at a particular point in the history of Israel. We'll come to that in a moment. To explain to them why God had made the world and the particular way in which he chose to do it. So that the intentions of God, the original intentions of God, and then what he's done to try to rectify the problem that comes in Genesis 3, uh, what he's done about that. So the first 11 chapters of Genesis are kind of one particular bit, and then it changes gear after that, which we'll look at in a couple of weeks' time. Those first 11 chapters are a mix of genres. Remember, Laura recently was telling us that we need to ask some big questions of every passage. What kind of literature is this? Is this a historical account? Is this prophetic literature? Is this kind of the crazy kind of a prophetic stuff of Ezekiel? Uh, is this wisdom literature? Well, here what you've got in Genesis 1 to 11 is a mix, I would suggest, of two genres. One, something that's known as theological history. So in other words, it tells the story of creation from a theological point of view. But, but when we think history, we tend to think facts and figures, things that we can prove. But if you've been reading through the Bible, you know there's some crazy stuff in here about people living for hundreds of years and all that sort of stuff. It's theological history. It's trying to do something different. So don't confuse that. Uh, And we spoke into that on the podcast that we recorded this week, if you're interested. The second kind of genre that's in there is this idea, particularly at the very, very beginning, this idea of true myth. It's telling a story, a mythical story, that conveys truth. Now, when we think myth, we tend to think something that's not true, right? That's a myth. But in the world of the Bible, myth is, uh, you can have true myth. This story that conveys truth. Um, If you're not convinced, I would just point you to Jesus and ask you how he taught truth. Most of the time, he told some really good stories that weren't true, but they were true, (laughs) if that makes sense. The second thing we need to remember is that it's not written for us. Sounds obvious, but the the danger for us is that we read this and go, well, it's in my Bible, it must say something directly to me. And it does, but it wasn't written for us. As I said earlier, it was written for a group of people. Most theologians would believe, uh, would argue that it was written to the people of Israel at a time in their history that's kind of what's known as post-exilic. Uh, They'd been in exile, and now they're not. And actually the authors, plural, probably, have compiled all these bits of scripture that have been around for some time, and they put them all together in this thing called the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, uh, and said, uh, here's um, here's the text that explains who we are, why we are who we are, what that means for us. And so it was written to them to explain to them who they were and why they're different. It's written to a group of people that God is trying to outwork his redemptive purposes for creation through at a time when actually all around them, all the other um, cultures and nations were operating so differently. They had multiple gods. But here's this people that are told, you just have one God. Here's this group of countries and nations and cultures around them that that do all sorts of horrible things to one another. And as Laura pointed out a couple of weeks ago, here's a nation that God says, no, 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 not, not like that for you. Because you're called to do something different by virtue of how you live. You're meant to reveal in and through your way of life what I intended for my creation right at the beginning. As I said, the, the authorship uh, is unclear Johnny and I had some interesting conversations about this. For many, many years, people said, oh, well, it was probably Moses. There's lots of evidence that Moses wrote bits of it, but he couldn't have written all of it because some of it was written after his death. In fact, some of it is about his death. So um, we know that there must have been uh, some other authors. And where I've landed on it is that uh, there were probably a number of authors who pulled together all these different bits at this point in history so that the people would know their origins, but so that they'd know also their calling. 
And so having said all of this, I want to suggest to you that Genesis transcends that historical and cultural context and has a lot to say to us today. Because actually in and through Jesus Christ, we're grafted into the same story that those people were in way back, way back then. And actually some of the things Genesis says are true for us today because they're true for the whole uh, history of the world. It does, however, all depend on the extent to which we're willing to grasp and grapple with Genesis uh, 1 and 2. And I've only got a little bit of time tonight to cover some of the key points. I want to highlight two, but I would encourage you to try and just get lost in the narrative again and again whenever you can. And we're going to link to some resources on our website that will help you do that. Here's the two points for this uh, particular uh, talk. The first is that we were created to live with God in a good creation. We need to really grasp that. Because it has implications for what it is to be the church and what mission is and how we treat people. And that sounds really obvious, but actually it was not obvious at the time. This was a revolutionary idea when it was first conveyed to the people reading Genesis, understanding who they were. Wow, okay. We'll come to that in a moment. The second thing to note is that our vocation, our calling as humans, is to rule over that good creation as God's image bearers in the world. When you want to know what God's calling you to do, that's what he's calling you to do. It's to rule over creation with him as his image bearers. What does that mean? We'll come to that in a moment. So number one, we were created to live with God in a good creation. I think Genesis 1 and 2 tells this beautiful and actually unexpected story of a creator God who creates with purpose and is motivated by love. We now know, because we can read backwards, remember, we read the Bible forwards and backwards, that's what Laura was helping us get our heads around. As we read backwards, we we know that God is a loving Father. God says, I am love. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Um, But at the time, they had no idea of that. So this idea that God created out of love was revolutionary. So uh, verse 2 of Genesis 1. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Oh, there's an entire talk in that one verse. But for tonight, just notice this. The earth was formless and void. It doesn't mean empty. The word in Hebrew uh, is this wonderful word, tohu vabohu, which is not a resort in Fiji, okay? Uh, It doesn't mean nothing, as I say. It means uncultivated, chaotic. Uh, It speaks of wilderness. It's a bit like Owen's back garden, really. Um, Speak for myself, yeah. Yes, good point. Okay. He's got a golf course in his back garden. In the first bit, it's the bottom bit I was referring to. Um, it's this idea that God creates uh, the world, but what, what we're hearing is that, that at that point in the story, it, it's just this formless and empty tohu vabohu. It's raw potential. It's all the raw materials out of which God then goes on to create something. So notice, it doesn't tell us how all of that toho vabuhu got there. It might be Big Bang. We, we don't know it because it's not asking that question and it's not answering that question. It's a given that God created, and at this point, verse 2, it's toho vabuhu. And out of that, God begins to work his magic. My son uh, was at Beaver's, a beaver workshop yesterday, and it was a clay pottery workshop. And they began with this just lump of wet clay. And bit by bit, they began to mould and shape something into, well, apparently it's an animal pot. We'll see. Um, but, uh, But the idea was that they were being taught how to work with the clay. It's the same idea. God creates this raw material and then begins to show off what he can do with it. God creates this world of beauty and order 
out of this wasteland, out of this chaotic, disordered, just kind of raw potential. It's just, it's there. One theologian calls it blob, which is deep, I know. (laughs) So, So Genesis is not about God bringing the world into physical existence. That's a given. It's about what God does with it. And, crucially, why? Why? Here's my take on it. God creates a creative creation. In other words, the creative creator creates a creative creation. And he places in his creative creation creative creatures who are called to create creation. Got it? Say that again. Say that again. <laughs> the creative creator creates a creative creation and he places in his creative creation creative creatures to create creation. Now I'm just showing off. No. I've spent years practicing. So if you were to go through the Genesis 1 account, what you'll see is that God creates the land and he says, let the land give forth to vegetation. It's the land that creates. Let the seas, let the air. Creation is inherently creative. And you and I, made in the image of the creator, are deeply creative. Not necessarily in the creative arts, but in all sorts of other wonderful precious, important ways that is inherent in creation. Now for today, all I want you to see is that as God does this creative work with his tohu vabohu, he says it's good. So have a look, verse 9, verse 11, verse 14, verse 20, verse 24, it's good. And then, by the time we get to verse 31... God has created mankind in his own image and he says, as he looks at all he's made, it was very good. And I believe that God would say to you and to me today that despite the fact that we're not Genesis 1 and 2 people, that we live in a post-Genesis 3 world, that we're still very good because we're made in the image of God and he doesn't make mistakes and you need to hang on to that for yourself but also for other people I believe in the doctrine of original sin which we'll get to uh, next week but actually I really more importantly believe in the doctrine of original goodness And I look at people and I think sometimes the danger for God's people is we look and we see sin and we see brokenness and we see mess and we see them making decisions that we think, oh, if only you knew Jesus. But actually what he wants us to do, because I think this is what he does, is that he wants us to see past that because this is what he does with us and see this original inherent goodness in them and to declare it and to call it out and say, this is how God made you. Do you ever have those moments where you go, some of my non-Christian friends are more good than me? (laughs) Yeah? Sometimes I look and I see all these wonderful things being done by people who don't know God, but it's actually all the stuff that God wants his church to do. Of course they do, because everyone made in the image of God, that's everyone, has original goodness in them. It might be hidden under layers of brokenness and mess and dysfunction, but it's in there. And so with eyes of faith, we call it out of one another and of those that we're sent to serve. The idea of creation being created good by God seems so obvious to us now, but at the time it was revolutionary. All the other ancient Near East narratives that tried to explain the origins of the universe and how on earth it all came to be and what on earth it all means, they told quite different versions of the same kind of story. So one of the most famous ones is this thing called the Enuma Elish. It's a Babylonian creative uh, creation narrative. It was written on tablets. There's a few copies and there's some uh, artifacts. You can read it online and uh, go on Google and you'll see it's all been written out in English. Uh, it was this Babylonian narrative that actually has all the same kind of features as the Genesis account. It talks of a watery chaos. Talk about that next week. It talks about creation that unfolds in six days, culminating in the creation of humanity on the sixth day, all like Genesis. 
But it tells a different kind of story. It actually says that the world was formed out of the dismembered corpses of all the gods following a really brutal battle and all the gods that died, what was left of them, that's what was used to create the world. Uh, When humanity is finally introduced in this Enuma Elish account, we're basically a total afterthought. It seems that it's a kind of like a granted request of one of the gods who survived, a god called Marduk, who thinks it's rather unfair that some gods should serve other gods. And so with these dismembered bits of other gods, they create humans to be our, to be their slaves. And so the Babylonian worldview was we are slaves to these gods. And into this context is this countercultural narrative that says actually no. No. God created you good. Not to be his slaves, but to be his children, to be his uh, image bearers. It was revolutionary. It was a polemic against all these other cultures, so that these people called by God to live differently would have this bigger yes in them. Oh, no, no, we're not like that. That's not true. This is true. Do you see the parallel between us and the church, uh, uh, us, the church, and then? That you and I need to understand who we are and whose we are so that we can live differently into the world for the sake of it. If we don't know it and really know it, then we won't be any different to anybody else. The basic message of the Enuma Elish and every other creation narrative was that the origins of the world are brutal. The world is brutal. You're a slave to the gods and you will end up with a brutal death. But Genesis says, no, there's this kind, loving creator who creates this thing of beauty and wonder. He sets it in motion. And he says, I want to do it with you. This is clear in Genesis uh, 1 at the end. Have a look at 26 to 28. I'm not going to read it all. God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. Notice, let us make. Who's that? Find out next week. So that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. We'll come back to that in a moment. God is doing something highly relational here. Humans, notice, are made according to his kind, whereas the plants and animals are made according to their kind. We are different to every other created thing. We're the only ones that bear the divine imprint. And he says, you are to rule over everything else that I've created. But it's more than that. We have this particular identity within creation. Actually, what uh, we need to understand is that we're called to be these divine image bearers in the world. Now, out of interest, anyone here been to um, Southeast Asia, traveling? Anyone? A few of you? Did you go to a Buddhist temple? Yeah, you do, apparently. I've never been, but uh, my brother-in-law's there at the moment, and it's just picture after picture of funny things and temples. And... um, when you go into a Buddhist temple, eventually you get to a point where there is sat there a Buddha, an idol of the Buddha, a physical representation of Buddha who's not actually there. And the idea is that <coughs> you would go into a temple uh, and you would see the physical representation of the God to whom that temple is dedicated, in which people wor- worship that God. And so all around, at the time that this uh, account is written, all the ancient Near East cultures, they had temples to all of these gods that they worship. Marduk and all the other ones that survived this brutal battle. And so you'd go into a temple, and you would see in the temple a physical representation of that god. Now the word here, in verse 26, for image, is actually the word idol. In the Hebrew it's the word selem, So in other words, it says better, let us make mankind to be our idol. What you need to see, what you need to grasp, is that the Garden of Eden was the first temple that God created. It's a heaven-earth creation temple. He made it 
uh, and it's the place in which those that are created to worship him, worship him in. But actually it's more than that, because what he says is, I'm going to place you as my idols in it. You're the physical representation of me in this temple. So everyone will see you and go, that's what God is like. This is huge. We are the divine image bearers in the creation temple. Originally, that's the intention that God has for Adam and Eve. We'll come to them in a moment. And this idea of the temple weaves its way all the way through the scriptures. We'll come to that at some point in the year of biblical literacy. But just think about the language that Jesus uses and is used of Jesus. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Uh, He is uh, the true idol. He's the true human in the temple. And notice that he says to the temple of the day, you can tear this down, but I tell you, I'll raise it in three days. Because he is the true temple. And then what does he say to us? You're now the temple. You're the living stones. The people in which uh, God dwells. We're the idols of God in creation. That's the divine image-bearing job description in part. There's a bit more to it, which we'll come to in a moment. So notice that Genesis 1 and 2, you're meant to see that it's a garden temple. It's the first bookend. And God made us and places us in it and says, now, go reveal me by who you are and what you do. Now, fast forward to the very, very end. I don't know why I'm walking over here, but you get to the very end of the Bible and you've got the very last two chapters which speak of a garden city temple. There's a synergy, there's a story here, and everything in between is about how we get from one to the other. You and I are the divine idols, the image bearers of God in the world. Which is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18 that we're being transformed into his image. It's the same idea. That as we're renewed, we better reflect and reveal in the world, the creation world of God, who God is and what he's like. No pressure or anything. But that's the plan. Do you get that? Good. Secondly, our vocation is to rule over that good creation as God's image bearers. So it's not just that we get placed originally by God in this garden temple to just be. There's actually a job to do. Uh, And we'll unpack that just real quick for a few minutes. This is the big idea of Genesis 2, that, that our identity as the divine image bearers comes with this job description to do some work. So have a look in Genesis 2, just flick over there to verse 4. It says that God formed the man. Now the word in Hebrew for Adam is the word human. God creates the human, Adam. Verse 15, notice he's given a role. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. It's actually a priestly role, to care and serve, to garden, to steward. They're placed in the garden and to work it. It's cultivating language. Pause for a moment, because... um, Before we unpack that in a bit of detail, I just want you to notice three other things in Genesis 2, which make sense of everything else. Um, First, have a quick look at verse 18. This is the first instance of something not being good in God's creation. And notice it's before the fall. It gives this idea that God is creating in partnership with that which he created. And, And it's this. It is not good for the man to be alone. So prior to the fall, there's something that's not quite right. What does God do about it? He sorts it out. Adam was lonely. Now, I just want to pause for for a moment and, and remind you that when you go to work tomorrow or into your university tomorrow or wherever it is you're going to be, you will be with people who are lonely. You live on a street in which people are Lonely. In fact, you're probably sat near someone tonight who actually is lonely. Don't be put off by the shiny, happy church face. Actually, we don't do that here, thankfully. But even so, some of you, if you're honest, you're lonely. In fact, I would go as far as to say that every human experiences some loneliness on a regular basis. It's part of being broken. 
But the reason I'm flagging it is that God saw that and it was not okay. Because God, you see, is inherently relational and he wants his creatures, particularly those made in his image, to share in that sense of community and relationship that is true of him as well. And so we know what happens. God creates a woman, verse 22. The word Eve means life. So God creates Eve, life. We have Adam and Eve, human life. They're archetypes, I think. I don't believe in a literal Adam and Eve. Sorry to blow your world. You can discuss that later. And he places them in the garden to be together with him, to have this perfect, gorgeous, wonderful, true community that you and I as the church are called to find ex- uh, ways to express uh, in power, in the power of the Spirit uh, on behalf of Jesus. That's the first thing to notice. The second thing to notice, verse 27, men and women were both made in the image of God. No theologian worth reading will tell you anything other than this, that God created men and women equal. And whatever's happened, Genesis 3 onwards, to distort that, God created something very good, and he created man and woman, and he said that they were equal. It is not that man is made in God's image and women in the image of God, uh, image of man, no. They're both made in the image of God. Which is why we contend here for that. Because we still live in a culture, just look at Donald Trump, that degrades and somehow places women as second fiddle to men. It's just fundamentally wrong. The third thing to notice, and we'll do a little series on this at some point in Yobel, that the three, or three of the fundamental human institutions, there's more than three, but three of the fundamental human institutions that we still consider to be essential to human flourishing are established by God as part of his creative activity in Genesis 1 and 2. Work, which isn't in Genesis 1 and 2 a bad thing. It's a good thing. Marriage and Sabbath. And as I say, we'll come back to that. But here's a little diversion for you, a very simple but important principle for us to have in our minds when we look into the world and we try to make sense of what on earth is going on, is to ask this question. Is what I'm experiencing, seeing in myself or in those I love or in the world around me, is that what God intended in Genesis 1 and 2? Or is it symptomatic of a Genesis 3 world? Because the kingdom coming is seeking to renew and restore all things. And so anything that's not as God intended is up for grabs. And so the way we treat women is needs to change. But there are certain things that were established and given in Genesis 1 and 2 that still play out in our world, and we celebrate and honour that. So you can kind of just make that simple, discon- uh, that, that simple um, connection. So another example would be sickness and disease. Actually, as you'll see next week, death itself. We're not part of God's original creation. So when you experience that, you can think that's not what God intended. And therefore you can assume that God has something to say about it and wants to do something about it. And he will want to do that through you and me, his image bearers in the world, in the name of Jesus, in the power of the Spirit. Which is why every time Jesus is confronted with sickness, he heals people. Why? Because he's putting things right. I could go off on one. But I'm sure there's a pub to go to later. So back to vocation, real quick. Woven through Genesis 1 and 2 is this clear message about what God wants us to do. So verse 8. The Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. Verse 15, we've looked at this. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. God created Adam and Eve, places them in the garden to be his image bearers, to be his idols, but also to work it. There was a job to do. And here's one of the problems for us. Too often, if we're not careful, is we come to Genesis 1 and 2 with some Sunday school theology, uh, which is this, that God created everything fixed it all up, got it exactly how he wanted it, it was boom, perfect, yay. The whole world 
filled with his glory. And into that, he plops Adam and Eve and says, can you look after it? Just don't make a mess of it, seriously. Like, I took a long time over this. Uh, and, you know, that's not what the scriptures say. That's not what Genesis says. What, God is, uh, what Genesis says is that God works with the Toho Vabuhu and he, and he creates a garden within this bigger creative world he's made and he cultivates it. Think National Park, not your back garden, right? And, and he places Adam and Eve in it and he says, now here's your job, is to work with me to fill the earth with the garden. The way I like to think of it is, can you extend the garden into the wilderness? Until all the toho bohu has been worked into something more beautiful. Can you cultivate with me this original creation? That's the original task given to Adam and to, to Eve. And it should give us some clues as to what the task is of the church. Which is to say there's still a whole lot of stuff out there that needs cultivating or redeeming. There's culture to create and there's culture to redeem. We've got work to do. It's the same thing. The same mission given to us. Adam and Eve are tasked with ruling over and stewarding creation until the whole earth has been filled and subdued. Verse 28. So Goheen and Bartholomew, in this book I recommend, they say this. We are God's royal stewards, put here to develop the hidden potentials in God's creation so that the whole of it may celebrate his glory. Adam and Eve's royal stewardship of Eden is to be a small version of what God intends to happen to the whole creation as history unfolds. Now, things clearly go wrong by Genesis 3, which is next week. But please hang on to this, because this thread is going to weave its way through the whole of this series so that we make sense of what it is to be uh, the image bearers today in Acts chapter 5. But this idea is key, uh, because to understand who we are and what God intended, we have to get our heads around this. We're called to partner with God. Theologians describe this, uh, or some do, as the cultural mandate. There's a commission to go create. Why? Because we're creative creatures, created by a creative God. And his expectation is we do something with the raw materials and all our skills and all our talents. And, and I think in here, in this cultural mandate, is room for medicine and architecture and teaching and music and anything that creates with the raw materials of God's creation. Something beautiful to reflect and reveal the glory of God, to make more heaven and earth. Which is why it matters what you do. And why it matters how you do what you do. You're not just earning money to pay the bills. You're either creating or you're redeeming. And sometimes you're doing both at the same time. Every single one of you is tasked with this. We've been invited to develop the possibilities inherent within creation in ways that reflect God's creative goodness. I mean, how amazing is that? Hello? So it doesn't matter what you do or how you do it, uh, as long as it's unto the things of the kingdom. And, And God's given us spiritual gifts and anoints us with his spirit and says, go, go, get on with it. And that's what we're here to do. That's why our, one of our strap lines is that, is that we're joining with God in the renewal of all things. It's not just being squeaky clean Christians, building a church and waiting for Jesus to return. It's getting on with the task of redemption. Our vocation is to shalom the planet. It's the same one that Adam and Eve had. The only difference is that we're starting from a different starting point. They were given this wonderful thing, told to extend it. We now find ourselves living outside the garden, trying to put things right uh, with Jesus. Shalom, as some of you will know, is this idea of universal flourishing, wholeness, perfection. Cornelius Plantinger, who is an amazing theologian with the wildest name, he says this, the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. 
And as we'll see over the next few weeks, in the same way that our need to be relational continues to this day, so does the commission to rule over creation with loving kindness. God's world, you see, is still very good. God's people are still very good. And so what we do and how we do it matters. God is concerned about the kind of work you do. There are some jobs that are out because they degrade and uh, break up creation. But everything else, it's there for the taking. And so we need to ask some big questions, I would suggest, as we end. What does it mean to rule and reign over creation as a reflection of God's goodness? There's a whole conversation we could have about the environment and care for creation, wildlife, all of that stuff. Uh, I think the Isons are here tonight. Laurie and Anne-Marie here. These guys, they're big champions of that. You know, this is not dominion over creation at the expense of it. It's stewardship. And a lot of what people now in that field are doing is actually redemptive work. Wildlife reserves, trying to protect good creation and get it back on track. The best zoos are trying to reintroduce creatures back into creation. It's all part of it. If you're in medicine, you're using the way that God created us and creation itself to put right the problems of a Genesis 3 world in human beings. It's amazing work, bless you. If you're a teacher, what are you doing? You're not getting them through SATs, GCSEs, key stage one. You're doing way more than that. You're, you're helping nurture people made in the image of God to discover their inherent goodness and to understand that they're uniquely placed in creation to help God fill it with his wonder and glory and beauty. If you're a parent, what are you doing? You've been given these little lives who are louder than they should be and messier than they should be and your task is to help them understand that's who they are. Second question is how do we represent God's desires for creation? How does the world see us? How do they need to see us? What do they need to hear from us? And finally, how does human life contradict God's intentions. There's a load of stuff we could ask under all of those, but I would suggest those are three brilliant questions. They're not mine. I just nabbed them from someone else. Because here's the deal. You can give yourself to this and come gloriously alive and fulfill your place in the story. Why wouldn't you do that? But you do it in community. You do your bit alongside everybody else in the sure and confident hope that he who began a good work in the garden and in me will complete it. And there will come a day when God says, not only is it very good, but it is done. Let's stand. All I want us to do tonight is open our hands if you're comfortable and to let the Spirit of God breathe life into us, which is what he does with Adam. And which, by the way, is what happens at Pentecost. God breathes life into his new humanity. It's the same Spirit. Because you cannot be the idol of God. You cannot be the divine image bearers. You cannot be co-partners, co-stewards with God in your own strength. We only have life in us because God gives it to us. Actually, he's given it back to us in and through Jesus Christ. And we receive it by the Spirit. And so, God, I pray you'd breathe upon us life. But as you do that, stir in us passion for a particular way of life.
from Holy Spirit. Father, would you speak again those words that we need to hear, that we're very good, that you see past what we're not, because you remember how you made us, and your judgment is that we're worth saving. So renew in us the image of your glory. Perfect in us, by your spirit, the image of your glory. And as you do that, help us look into the world with eyes of possibility. And give us courage and boldness to go and to create and to redeem. So we lay tomorrow morning before you, this week before you, our diaries before you, our work commitments, our domestic commitments, our relationships, our communities. And I pray that you'd help us to call out the goodness in everyone we meet. And I pray you'd help us to work for the furthering of your kingdom in everything we do. And as we go from here, I, I pray there'd be a fresh spring in our step and that you protect us from the evil one. We pray these things, Lord, in your name and ultimately for your fame. Amen.